Hello. Hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. I am your host, Maria Cernat, an academic based in Bucharest. And with me, as usual, the co-host of the show, the Bulgarian-born Polish journalist Bojan Stanislavski. Thank you for being here with us. And now to our special guest, Filip Lotholz. He is a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Conflict Studies at the University of Marburg, Germany. His research interests include critical peace, conflict and security studies, political sociology. And he is here today to discuss Germany. Uh, we discuss mostly Eastern European affairs, but I think given the current situation and of course the war in Ukraine, it's so important to have guests discussing Germany, how is Germany reflected in how is Eastern European looking uh, at what was for a long time considered an ideal in terms of uh, democracy, in terms of um, um, punctuality, all these values that are related to Germany in general. So Boyan, I'm going now to you and I will ask you to lay out the, the how should I say, to discuss a little bit more about the reasons why we meet today and uh, some of the questions and uh, topics we will be addressing. Right. Uh, so thank you. I want to also extend uh, our warm welcome uh, to Philip uh, and to the viewers. Uh, thank you for being here with us uh, and thank you for, uh, you know, uh, this uh, setting of merits where we're going to discuss Germany. It's uh, it's very interesting because there are many people in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, large portions of our public opinions where you know, Germany has always been regarded as this, maybe not ideal of democracy, as Maria said. I think this is a risky statement, by the way, <laughs> to say that Germany is the ideal of democracy. But, uh, but, but as as the kind of uh, as a kind of unique place uh, where things happen as they should, where there is law, where there is order, uh, where there are you know social structures which are clear, where there are streets which are clean where there is infrastructure which is functional, where there's a lot of public transit, where there, you, you know, the, uh, the autos are fantastic, uh, where the industry is thriving, uh, where trains come on time, where, you know, all those great things happen, which we thought will or would never happen in our part of the world. So Germany was a kind of model, was a kind of maybe ideal uh, that we should strive to achieve, like, of course, mm -hmm. we uh, always think that we'd never get there because, you know, we're too weak in so many aspects. And, uh, you know, all those stereotypes, if you like, they are being shattered now. And they are being shattered not so much because the streets of Berlin are not as clean as they used to be, uh, not because there's more crime uh, than there used to be 10 or 15 years ago, because most people in Eastern Europe are not really aware of those uh, statistics and are not aware of the crumbling infrastructure here and there, because you know they don't travel to Germany maybe that much. Uh, Germany is a fantastic place, but maybe not such a popular tourist destination as you know many other uh, places. So they are not aware of that, but what they see is they see the performances of your new political class, Philip. And this is what I'd like you 
uh, to comment on in the beginning of our program because this is there's a dramatic shift and we don't quite understand what's going on i mean i have some theories about it and some observations that i might share on a later stage uh, but uh, you know for the majority of the people who are interested in interested in international politics they see what the german government is doing and they go like what the hell we've never seen or never expected such degradation in such a short time span i mean uh, your chancellor who is very weak who seems to be a very weak personality is one thing but then there are the two other members of your government which is annalena berbock and robert habeck who are making an impression of being completely detached from reality of being completely unaware of the responsibilities that they carry with the positions that they have that is respectively the foreign minister and the minister of economy and there's one gaff after another you know with with amazing stunning regularity at least three or four times a month uh, I'm not going to play, you know, waste time now playing the, the clips because I'm sure many or most of our uh, viewers and listeners have seen or heard that. But uh, let's just remind, Annalena Baerbock was not able to make up her mind whether Germany is at war with Russia or not. She openly stated that Germany, or Germany or the European Union is at war with Russia. And then, you know, her press office was trying to sort of backtrack it and roll it back in a very... Uh, I would say strange manner and and you know no credibility there. Uh, then you know she said uh, that uh, for for a month uh, sorry for one year or a year and a half or something like that the tables have turned in terms of European policies 360 degrees. Uh, before that uh, she went to uh, sorry not before that but after that like quite recently I think in April she went to Brazil where she lectured the Brazilian politicians and some members uh, of, of like other political organizations, I mean, not, not represented in official, you know, parliamentary or other political institutions, where she lectured them about how, it, how strange it was for her to discover that people in Brazil are more concerned about the price of a kilogram of rice or, or beans or something like that, rather than uh, being preoccupied about what's going on halfway around the world in you you know from their point of view in ukraine and that this is very saddening so obviously there are things which are not all right in terms of her cognitive apparatus if you like and she she doesn't seem to be competent enough to be a politician in general let alone a foreign minister of an important uh, country in europe and the world and then robert habeck with his famous viral now you know not only in eastern europe but i'm sure throughout the world statement like yes you know we are kind of closing down certain industries because of the sanctions and because of the you know energy crisis that was provoked by those sanctions mm, but maybe we will just turn them on in at one point in time which you know the, the kind of naivete that was displayed does not correspond by any stretch with someone who has the potential the capacity the competence right to be the minister of economy of a country like Germany, because I could understand that if you're a minister of economy, I don't know, in North Macedonia or Montenegro or Andorra, where maybe you have one factory, then yeah, okay, like <laughs> that would kind of be maybe acceptable. Uh, but this, you know, is not funny. And I wonder, do you perceive it rather funny or rather pathetic? What do, uh, do w w what does the German public 
think about this? And is the German public aware that you are a laughing stock now? Go ahead, Philip. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. And uh, yeah, of course, very important and uh, pressing questions there. And uh, maybe start. Partly at the forefront. Is really failing in its job, right? Okay, uh, so uh, Philip, I have to interrupt you. I'm sorry because the internet connection was failing. So just please restart. All right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, there's lots of pressing and important questions here. And um, uh, starting in reverse order, we can say yes. Uh, the German public is definitely aware to different degrees, obviously, uh, but there is a very stark criticism. Uh, because on top of all the things that you've said now that are in domestic politics, but also international politics, there's even more stuff going on, even more challenges being dealt with. For example, the energy transition. So right now, the biggest uh, issue in, in the country is the you know uh, uh, law on renewal of, of heatings and general uh, uh, heating of buildings, which was uh, even a bigger uh, kind of turmoil and, and farce. Uh, but it's it's been finally passed, but in a very watered-down version. So, uh, yes, generally there is awareness, but also contestation around these things. So maybe first things first. Yes, there is, uh, uh, and we can see it all, right, that there is some lack of ability on part of certain individuals to deal with the situations that they're in. And I, I think we can kind of, you know, deconstruct it in a way saying that this is partly really their fault. It's the wrong person in the wrong place, and it should probably be another person. But I guess we, we could also argue that um, to some extent, these are also situations that, uh, you know, that, that are just wicked and, and so very hard to deal with. And then you would just need to have a very different approach where you don't put yourself in a place to make these statements that you, for example, quoted from, from Habeck or also Baerbock. Uh, so starting maybe really with, uh, yeah, maybe personal deficiencies. I mean, this, these are not single cases, right? But um, I think you also mentioned it. It's it's kind of a new political generation. I wouldn't even say new political class because probably, you know, the, the class reproduction mechanism is still alive and kicking. That hasn't changed a lot. But uh, I think what, what we have now is slowly manifesting is is a kind of change uh, in the uh, lower rank, uh, sorry, the, the more junior ranks um, of politics, right, where we basically have people from the generation from the three of us, you know, from the uh, across the 80s, even late 80s, early 90s, you know, very young people that have a very different approach to politics, which is also refreshing because then, you know, they can better involve young people also in politics, uh, reach out to, to new constituencies. But that also uh, then in, in some cases, at least, if not in many, uh, lack maybe certain, I don't know, historical, biographical background and maybe also professional background, right? And um, so I, th I think Baerbock uh, is, a, is a prime example of this, but I don't want to focus too much on her um, uh, because there are more, you know, green politicians that, that kind of uh, are in the, in the same kind of track that are uh, quite junior, that, yeah, have... Uh, partly very little experience, but that have actually, uh, you know, uh, quite some weight because together they built this forest that then takes these decisions. So obviously now what you mentioned, uh, you know, Russia as being the, I think the, the main security threat for Germany as it was framed, 
This was actually as part of the presentation of the uh, German national security strategy. So this wasn't just, you know, Baerbock uh, kind of putting out her own thinking, but this is actually a framing that, that is then established in the strategy. So this is based, you know, on uh, uh, the, the government's uh, different coalition partners, you know, discussing these things and establishing this. And for sure, for the social democrats, this for some of them at least, it will have been hard to swallow it. But um, yeah, I mean, this is this is massive, and it shows basically that the entire political establishment, uh, MEPs, and and you know also different people in the bureaucracies, uh, for them this is now really the the new kind of normal, and it's part of this change of times or Zeitenwende that we've seen because since February 2022, you know, all attempts to kind of uh, defend Russia, right, uh, and, and its policy, um, they are kind of unacceptable. Uh, and we discussed this last time, right, that basically now with this uh, war of aggression that has been committed, uh, it, it's kind of clear that uh, Russia can now legitimately be labeled as the main threat to, you know, uh, Western countries, and, and uh, it's, it's just this way. However, yeah, we realize it's very superficial, right? And I, I, I believe yeah. many people also believe that. I mean, many people realize that in Germany that it's very superficial. And to translate the superficial impression into something mm. like a national security strategy is yet another brick in the wall of becoming uh, an unserious country. I'm sorry, like, I, I don't yeah. want to be offensive towards anyone here. I, I'm just trying to, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would like to link it back because we can't probably go into much detail here, but we talked last time, right, how uh, basically uh, Germany, so the political establishment, also the media landscape, but then also broader population is somewhat disconnected from Eastern Europe in general and Russia probably more than any other country. Because, I mean, we, we simply have to face the fact that Germany has always been linked more strongly across the Atlantic, right? So with the US uh, and, and, you know, with kind of North America and even Latin America, you know, for young people in terms of traveling is just much more interesting. Um, I mean, we do also increasingly have these observations of Eastern Europe becoming interesting for travel, but generally the cultural and, you know, political and ideological linkages are just uh, much stronger with, uh, with uh, North America and, and the general Anglo-American world. So uh, this was always the case, but now basically I think what we can see is that the few people that still had some Eastern European competence, you know, and I've uh, studied with them, I've done my PhDs with them, uh, they basically also have ceased to be, you know, real Eastern Europe experts that kind of speak up and say, well, we need to have a different approach here. Uh, they are either all silent or they are also in, you know, think tanks in Washington, D.C. or, you know, just uh, in this whole kind of transatlantic trajectory. So basically all critical voices uh, um, uh, are kind of somehow silenced now or have, have become less significant. And it's been also simply hard right, to, to speak up against uh, uh, the way that, that we're dealing with, with Russia and Eastern Europe, which is not to say that there has to be like criticism and strong positioning, right? But uh, of course now this uh, with the security strategy and this framing, it's, it's a new stage. And uh, another problem is really that actually the funny thing is Baerbock, herself, she, she then framed it as the Russian regime, the Russian government being the main security threat. But uh, in uh, the Financial Times and in other publications, we, of course, have the framing Russia. And this is happening now all the time, you know, that basically uh, Russia as a country and as societies. Oh, yeah. he's disconnected. Uh, and, I was going uh, to 
Oh, you're back. Okay, you please are repeat your last for, for, yeah, Repeat your last before I get the chance to ask you something about the ecology and Annalena Baerbock. Yeah, so, so justice, uh, basically that, so now we have this uh, new framing, right? But it's also basically the, the outcome of a wider process wh whereby basically um, this disconnect from Russia. And yeah, what I was uh, then saying was that there is a Freudian slip very often now in, in media and in politics. Yeah, he's disconnected a little bit again. Yeah, like obviously the, the, the software doesn't. So, uh, Philip, the software does not want you to finish your thoughts. We <laughs> can you have to finish your yeah. in the last sentence. Uh, obviously, there's something dangerous that you have to say. So try again. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, basically this uh, fact that um, Russian society and, and, and Russian culture is often now equalized with the, the Russian government, right? And this is an important mm. differentiation that would actually have to be made. So, so but it's, it's happening now increasingly. Okay, Maria, so go ahead. I'll... I was going to, yes, yes, I was going to ask something that puzzled me right from the beginning. I mean, as a feminist, of course, I was happy to see somebody like Annalina Baerbock being elected, like somebody who pays attention to climate change. I was happy to see somebody from the Green Party, like Annalina Baerbock, being elected. And then it seems like everything that was supposed to be positive about her election went away in the sense that every kind of, of, of interest in ecology and implications of cutting off the Russian gas in terms of ecology was disappearing and um, yeah, yeah <laughs> you came back and the, the Russian threat the Russian threat seemed to erase any kind of interest that initially put Annalina Baerbock and the Green Party where they are and there are two questions here. How is it possible to come up with a green agenda and then erase it and focus exclusively on security? And how is it possible to sell it to the left-leaning progressive green voters, uh, this type of, of contradiction between the security obsession, I would call it, that erased any kind of, of focus on ecology because we are now in the situation where cutting off uh, Russian gas meant bringing back the coal mines and all those industries, fossil fuel industries that are so detrimental for from an ecological point of view, not to mention the liquefied natural gas that it's detrimental for the environment, its extraction is detrimental, but then also its transportation. So it's twice as, uh, as um, detrimental as the, the Russian gas. So how is it possible to end up with such, with such people that came to power with a green agenda and now it just vanished? Yeah, and the answer is again, well, and you already, you already kind of indicated it, it's Russia, right? So it's uh, February 2022, and basically uh, we can see now that, um, and, and this has been repeatedly argued that 
the civilizational break that Russia has committed and, uh, you know, necessity now to stand strong and to kind of uh, defend Western liberal values and Ukraine as a guarantor of these values being at the frontier, you know, defending them, that this has been uh, supported at almost all costs. So some of the, you know, green transition is, is still happening and, and they're trying, of course, to also advance it. But yeah, all these compromises have happened, as you say. And actually the, the green party itself, but especially also the wider uh, green uh, and e ecological transition movement is super split. So we had actually, you know, large scale protests at one uh, at, at one open pit uh, uh, coal mining site in Lützerath uh, last year. And uh, actually activists have also uh, occupied a green uh, party office uh, and, and lots of different things. We have the last generation, you know, who have become notorious because they stick themselves to to road surfaces in, in Berlin and in many cities blocking traffic. So the, the movement is very split and increasingly their voice is saying the, the Green Party is basically a party of power, right? That basically pursues uh, governmental power and, and actually also war. However, why does this still work for them? So I've mentioned that there's this general disconnect in the population, right? Or lack of connect with Eastern Europe and especially Russia. And what we can see now is that even more left-leaning and, you know, social equality-oriented supporters of green voters, but also SPD, um, it's this kind of, you know, affect, this political affect where they all rally around the flag and unreservedly stand behind the government course of, uh, well, government. I mean, that's also relative because the government has been notoriously slow, right, in terms of coming forward. But nevertheless, are doing weapon deliveries are fully supporting Ukraine in many ways. And um, so this is happening, this rallying around the flag of a big, great part of also the progressive voter base, because just this, you know, uh, moral necessity of basically supporting then the country that supposedly is upholding these liberal rights and is exercising its own choice, that is simply then more, more important. And I mean, I think we can also partly see that, right, because it's this idea of, well, what would you do if you were in the situation? So it's this idea, and we have had many of these cases in liberal democracies, you know, where people in some country that is being, you know, act or is, is having some, you know, uh, revolution or whatever, they are kind of imagined as, well, this could be us, or maybe this was us, I don't know, 100 years ago. So now we have to stand with them. And that basically then becomes more important. So we put Ukraine flags on our balconies, even if we don't even know where the country is we've never been there we don't know what the conflict in the country is like but we will simply do it because uh, media and uh, friends and maybe even people from ukraine that we've met tell us that that's what we have to do so you know it's this collective political affect that that drives the whole thing in that direction yeah and and notwithstanding all the doubts and and uh, all the contradictions yeah so this is how, how they can still square the circle basically Okay, uh, well, I think it's very important what you said uh, when you described the uh, structure, the, the kind of cognitive structure, political cognitive structure, if you like, of the German public, or at least of the that part of the German public which is interested in international politics, is that there was always, there's always been this sentiment that goes across the pond, like, you know, links directly to the United States, to American culture, uh, but also in terms of leisure, right, to South America, because this is interesting and kind of exotic and, you know, uh, 
everything you described is is very interesting in con because it stands it's very interesting to me because it stands in direct contradiction to how germany is described in poland now i don't know if you're aware of this but in poland uh in poland germany is presented as the most russophilic country and the most russophilic people most russophilic society in the whole of europe and that it, it you know the, our politicians our media employees I, I hate to call them journalists really uh they are trying to 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 portray germany as as the historical staunch uh alley of first the Russian Empire, then the Soviet Union, uh, that it was that, that you allowed as a nation to be split, you know, that, that, that also is supposed to be a kind of confirmation of that. Uh, then, you know, with Gerhard Schroeder, uh, you know, his, uh, his friendly relations with Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, him being on the board of, I can't remember, was it Rosneft or Gazprom or something like that. And uh, also, the kind of basis for your success which is cheap russian energy sources which supplied your industry which became famous around the world and cheap but very good but cheap thanks to russia because you know so uh, in poland it's like now when you when you come to ask people who support the government which is the majority of the polish public then they would tell you that Germany is the friend of Russia and it has always been and it is even now, although it has to pretend it is not, because what they are hoping for, what the Germans are hoping for is that the war is going to be over at one point and we're going to have, again, the cozy deals with the Russians and we're going to thrive and our industry is going to grow and all the rest of it. And deep inside, you have in your DNA, you have this kind of thing for Russia. You're longing for Russia. You love Russia. So this is, and now you seem to be saying that this is completely, totally, utterly false, and that everything that's been going on over uh, the last couple of, uh, well, not couple of months, but over a year now, uh, is is actually more of a manifestation of the German mindset collectively being prepared to you know detach themselves from russia you know and 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 join the kind of anti-russian whatever coalition uh or, or or you know support ukraine uh in this uh, in this conflict so uh are, are are the polish wrong i mean you were nodding your head so like are the polish wrong or wrong to a large extent what is the situation yeah i mean we have to relativize right so um this is, is a historical and also geographical question because so I was now talking probably about also my relative perception. Uh, I mentioned I'm, I'm actually East German myself. We must not forget uh, almost 20 or 17 million uh, East Germans, right? For, uh, for whom then obviously, uh, yeah, Eastern Europe and, and Russia are, uh, is a space that is much more familiar and close. But um, so my description was especially on West Germany, but I would also argue that, you know, now this, uh, this whole thing is kind of, um, yeah, I don't know that now in the new age, let's say 30 years on from the, you know, from the uh, uh, end of the, of the um, socialist bloc, uh, this, this first thing that I've described is kind of taking overhand. Um, and you can see it also in the, the debate on the Ukraine war that basically then 
uh, we discussed this also already last time that uh, positions that say, well, yeah, but we have, you know, historical or biographical links with Russia and we are against this uh, categorical, uh, you know, judgment against especially Russian society, but maybe even against the, the Russian regime, uh, that these things partly become unsayable or they become pathologized. And um, yeah, so I, I don't, I think one simply has to also move away from this, you know, whole idea of it's all about Putin and the regime and, and to see this on a broader basis, which doesn't happen, however. Uh, so I guess to, to an extent, uh, the polls are right. Uh, th th this is to an extent right. But uh, I think it's also important to see that this is actually more also an elite level, uh, you know, political uh, class thing, right? Where these links have always been there. There has always been diplomacy, obviously the, for obvious reasons, right? Because uh, as, as we know, the, you know, the, um, the treaties with Russia also actually settled uh, the order uh, a nicer line and, you know, borders between Germany and Poland and all these things. So it's, it was always also linked to territory and actually populations that, that had been uh, expelled from uh, from uh, current Western Polish uh, territory. So in a, in a sense, uh, this is true. And but I would say, in, you know, in terms of which part of society has the, the heavier weight, that's definitely the, you know, transatlantic transatlantically linked uh, and, and kind of, you know, Western looking uh, kind of parts of society, because they are the ones that then go into politics. So you have very uh, much fewer, you know, people with this more uh, kind of uh, background linked to Russia or, or openness towards Russia and Eastern Europe. You do have them, especially in Die Linke, in the left party, also in, in the Social Democrats. I think across the board you will have them, but they will just be more quiet in, in other contexts. So so that's what's what's like now the, you know, kind of the domination uh, and, and prevalent uh, kind of uh, outlook in German politics. Okay, uh, so one more question before Maria, you you can uh, you, you can um, ask about the media landscape. Uh, but w one more question with regards to Poland, because there's, there's, there seems to be this competition, and uh, Poland seems to be winning that competition, or at least this is you know the the position of the Polish government about it is that you know we should go full speed, uh, you know full spectrum kind of support for Ukraine, give them everything, you know whatever they like, whatever they want, uh, whatever weapons, whatever military equipment, whatever manpower, you know, anything they like, right? Uh, and uh, Germany, uh, the German government, especially at the beginning of the, of the war, by the way, had a very, uh, very careful attitude and, you know, was not allowing certain things, was not allowing other countries to transfer uh, equipment that was, that originated in Germany, was produced in Germany, you know, uh, and then subsequently sent to those countries. I think Estonia and Latvia were mm, uh, such examples. And and then gradually things started to change. And you know your chancellor he started to be called Germ. Uh, sorry, what was it? Sergeant Schultz because he just seemed around to go to to he seemed to be going around the world collecting orders and just going like, of course, of course, yes, I, I'm doing that. And I wonder uh, whether this competition has whether there are any comments with regards to the, to this in in the German uh, media sphere, which perhaps is going to be a good segue then for Maria to ask her question, but but also if uh, uh, if there is this understanding that the way Schultz behaves demonstrates to everyone that you're not really your political. 
now Boyan seems to have <laughs> having problems with the internet connection. Let's uh, wait no. for him to get. Okay, so now, now I disappeared. I'm sorry. Uh... We're not really. So it stopped at. We are not really something. Class is not really an independent political entity, and when you add the Nord Stream well, incident, let's call it, uh, on top of that, you you see that that there is there is clear pattern of obedience, which is which manifests itself in in people not saying obvious things and not protesting obvious things, and then you know we can even go back to uh, you know to to uh, Angela Merkel's phone private phone, I think, being wiretapped by the American NSA or something. So I want I, I want you to comment on those two things. The, the, the question of the competition, whether Germany is in competition really with Poland or other countries to be at the forefront of the American, you know, of the American game here uh, or, or of the, you know, American interest here in order then to maybe get something from America when they are at the head of it. Mm, or, or, or uh, and also whether the public is recognizing and how it is reacting to the fact that you know certain things are you know in German politics, especially internationally, are weird, really weird. If 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 Germany is supposed to be this serious you know stronghold of the European Union and yeah, um, yeah, no, good questions and and uh, again like uh, should be really unpacked. So in terms of the first thing, I mean, I think it's important to just, uh, you know, be aware that the, the German government obviously is made up of a coalition, right, of uh, Liberal Party, Green Party and Social Democrats. And uh, so the, you know, the initial holding back of Scholz um, and, and also, yeah, generally of the government line, I mean, that was mostly, I was based, you know, on um on circles in the in the social democrats that that have kind of more links with with eastern europe and russia and um and also based obviously on on wider societal skepticism right in terms of okay how did this war start should should we really get involved in this way that other countries say we should and so on and um so uh, I, I would say, so on, on the one hand, you have uh, war hawks. You just have to say it like this, you know, in the uh, Liberal Party, the Free Democratic Party, and in the Green Party, you really have this kind of warmongering agenda, right, that, yeah, would just like to be ahead of Poland or, you know, would like to be exactly in the same line like uh, like uh, many East European countries. But uh, you do have, uh, yeah, now even more established, you know, this con uh, this discourse uh, among the social democrats of well let's let's not hurry too much and yeah let's let's think this through and let's coordinate and some of these things were kind of you know smoke screen i really believe because it it just couldn't be at some point that you are still holding back when how how long can you possibly check and coordinate stuff right and just not give a statement or at least you know give an intention um but uh, partly it's also uh, also what i uh, already said that they're actually trying to capture then, you know, the voters and, and the people who have these, uh, you know, uh, critical perspectives or, or completely dismiss uh, such involvement. So they're trying to kind of play play off both positions. Um, so generally, I don't think that then as a government, so these things have to come together as a government. And, and there have been several moments now the past weeks where, you know, they were on the brink of saying, well, it doesn't probably work. It still works, but so, you know, it's a, it's a very contested line, but then it's not like the kind of at the forefront, but we do have many people in the media that are like, 
yeah, of course, and it's going to come anyways, and the fighter jets are going to come anyways, right? We're anyways going to somehow support this. So uh, it's, it's also still heavily contested. And then the, the second part on, yeah, so so how are these things possible, right? Uh, uh, how, how is this, this behavior of, of Scholz, how can it be explained? Um, I think... Uh, it's it actually also links links back to the first aspect where basically um i guess at at some point then uh, Scholz and and wider social democratic policy circles realized that uh, maybe that line is not just not going to help them you know and they just have to kind of uh, uh, give in to an extent because also uh, yeah public opinion is is uh, slightly shifting but then they they're playing it off off against each other as as i already said and uh, so um yeah, so I would just see it in this in this general context of this uh, of this contestation. Um, but yeah, feel free to to follow up on this if if I didn't answer something. Oh no, that's okay. Maria, go ahead with your questions. We're approaching the end of the program. Yes, for the end of the program, I'm very curious to find out two things: whether there are polls with regards to the German population's perceptions, reactions, and ideas with regards to the war in Ukraine. And whether in the mainstream media there are critical voices towards the external uh, policies of Germany with regards to the war in Ukraine. And if there is a balanced debate in the sense that, of course, you may have critical voices, but then if it is arranged, like one person is saying that we should be more balanced and the other fighters are attacking that person, that is not really a, a debate. And I think this is very, very uh, important to see. Yeah, thanks. Um, quite important. And I think so the the poll that I've recently seen one or two weeks ago, uh, and, and that was on uh, weapon deliveries and general support of Ukraine. Uh, so there we really see that overall, more people have uh, voted either strongly in favor or just in favor of uh, you know, weapon deliveries and, and the support for Ukraine. So uh, this is increasingly shifting, although it was just, you know, uh, above, I think, 55 to 45%. Um, so so there's also still a sizable population, right, that that has doubts and that, that would prefer a, a, another policy course. And, um, yeah, I mean, adding to, to complexity in, in answering this question, you know, is the fact that, uh, so often, like negotiations are uh, kind of presented as uh, alternative to weapon deliveries, right? But then uh, a lot of the debate tries to clarify that, well, anyways, you can't have either one or the other. They kind of need to go both together. And so the, I think, most frequently made argument at the moment is that, well, you kind of need both and you can only ever start, you know, negotiating seriously when uh, Ukraine is in a strong position you know, so it doesn't have to make too many concessions. So that's kind of the, the main also liberal uh, kind of position. And it basically is, is also, you know, uh, justifying then uh, yeah, just this agenda as it has, has been evolving so far. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard to argue against that then also given the, the way that the debate is structured. And uh, then there's, you know, a lot of this kind of uh, uh, murky kind of pointing to, well, there, there are channels anyways. So, you know, Scholz and Putin are on the phone anyways. And, uh, secret diplomacy is happening anyways so let's not over you know let's not not get hung up over this because stuff is happening anyways so they're trying to kind of shut off the debate but uh, yeah there's more to be discussed about that and on that actually um 
also a bit in contrast to the last discussion we had where we discussed this programmatic formats where we have maybe one maximum two critical voices right that can then get attacked and interrupted and basically uh, just somehow verbally destroyed by you know mainstream uh, liberal arguments um you can actually see a bit of a shift there because i, th I think that has been you know a kind of lesson that there maybe needs to be more symmetry and more control also over you know uh, debating formats uh, on TV. So what we can see, and, and some of this has been going on for longer, some of it seems more new. Uh, so for example, formats where a moderator just talks to one person or uh, talks to two persons that have uh, contrasting points of view. So a prime example is uh, just uh, this week in one uh, debating format where basically Sarah Wagenknecht, of course, notoriously, you know, the person you probably cannot say mainstream, but uh, basically the person with her um, uh, a petition that she issued with Alice Schwarzer, uh, uh, kind of um, advocating for uh, negotiations, but also for concessions. And that's the main critique of uh, towards her that uh, she's too openly kind of, you know, demanding con concessions from Ukraine. Uh, so she was debating with uh, Florence uh, Gaub, uh, an expert from the NATO Defense College, and it was interesting to see that uh, once they got kind of, uh, you know, the, the same airtime uh, to, to make their points, um, there was ultimately, from what I heard, and I don't like Sarah Wagenknecht, I think she's too nationalist and anyways too too much of a power politician, but she simply made that point that, well, if, if we look at it, at how the, the conflict in Ukraine, you know, uh, escalated in, in different stages and then uh, it, it came to the breakout of this war of aggression, that there is at least a co-responsibility, that there is some level of responsibility, not the entire guilt, but some level of responsibility on part of the West and of, of NATO countries. And there wasn't actually a, a strong, you know, a substantive uh, counter-argument on that. So, I mean, then, of course, these things are also very short on time and they finish fast, but there wasn't really any effective way of saying, well, yeah, but it's not true or, you know, um, mm -hmm. Because usually then in, in debates, what happens is we say uh, Russia is authoritarian and has a psychopathic megalomaniac leader. So hence, mm -hmm. they are basically guilty for everything. Uh, but these formats help to kind of break up these uh, totalizing kind of critiques and, and more nuance. Uh, although it's, it's still to be seen how, how much then such a perspective can be further deepened and followed up. Okay, so uh, I think we can end the program on this point, but I'd like to just ask one very, very short question, and uh, hopefully we can get a short answer from you about that. Is this true that uh, the AFD, the, the kind of far-right, the whatever party in German, nationalistic kind of party in Germany, alternate, alternative for Germany uh, with the initials AFD, they are now basically almost equal with the social democrats in the polls is that is that true i mean that's that's what we we keep hearing in eastern europe yeah yeah so recent polls have have shown that they're basically uh a second or close to second i mean I, I would have to go back to the poll but so they're super strong and the reason is basically you know these contestations over this uh heating uh reform law and uh, basically also uh conservatives trying to basically agitate in a, what they call Kulturkampf, like cultural struggle against the heating ideology. So it's, it's this kind of, you know, uh, it has been commented uh, manifold that basically uh, conservatives are trying to jump on the far right kind of argumentation, but uh, the result has been that still AFT gets basically, you know, the, 
the support in the polls. So okay, the, uh, 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 but does it does it make some people think in the establishment? Like you know, we've we've messed it. Like we've really failed. Does, does anyone come to think about it that way? I think so, because now they basically against all odds, uh, you know, uh, push through this, this law, which is super watered down. But then, you know, kind of I, I think it had that effect, you know, of, of them not kind of failing to push the law through, pass it before the summer break, because now it's summer break. So that would have been an even bigger failure. But I think that they're still thinking a lot and, and wondering yeah, how, how can this be dealt with? So it's it's really difficult times. OK. All right. Uh, Maria, do you have any closing remarks? No, I would just say that it's very important to to have a balanced debate, not because uh, you are pro or anti whatever country, but because there is too much at stake here. I just heard an article. I just read an article this week uh, saying that the West should uh, provide Ukraine with tactical nuclear weapons. I mean. You know, when you're in the center of, of a conflict like this, you don't even realize how much is at stake. And we are beyond the point where we realize how dangerous it would be to have a nuclear confrontation, how lethal, how disastrous. And this is why I think one way forward is to have a rational, balanced debate and not let ourselves get carried away. No matter how much we are for Ukraine and we want the people of Ukraine to thrive, we have to be very rational and and careful in what we do, because otherwise, if you let our emotions just play out and take a hold of ourselves, we risk our very existence and we have to be careful and serious about it and, and uh, just refrain from labeling any person that has a more nuanced balance and, and, and how should I say, more balanced point of view from labeling it as being pro or anti or extremist or, or whatever. So I think the, the viewers should do... I don't know, engage in rational debates, uh, look for different critical points of view. And um, yeah, this is my closing remark. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you so much, Boyan. To the viewers, if you like what you saw, you can find us, uh, patreon.com slash the barricade. This is where you can make a monthly subscription donation. We have a small community of donors. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, It's much appreciated and need it and for the others subscribe share our content uh, and be with us in the next uh, segment of our show thank you so much thank you thanks